Well, it's a high privilege for me to be with you this morning and just to share my heart a little bit. I was telling Dave before I got up to speak, I said, I have so much to say, I don't even really know where to begin. And Dave just said, well, why don't you begin at the end? And uh, looking at my time, that might not be a bad idea. What I want to do this morning is just share a little bit about my life and how I came to know the Lord and how the Lord used all of these experiences to finally lead me to South Africa. And then I'll finish by telling you a little bit about the country of South Africa and hopefully be able to give you some insights that uh, you have not gotten through the media before. Uh, when I look back over the course of my life, it almost seems soap operatic. And it seems surreal at best. You see, I come from a non-functional family. My family was not dysfunctional, it was non-functional. In fact, my family was abuser-friendly. When I was a kid, because of my mother's illness, I was bandied about from relative to relative. And it seemed like every few months, my bags were packed and I was moving again. For several years, I lived with an uncle of mine who was an alcoholic. And that turned out to be a real Poseidon adventure for me. When I was 14, my father, under the guise of getting the family back together under one roof, decided to divorce my mother, who was ill at the time, and decided to marry another gal. And so he married this, this lady. And needless to say, we had what I call a love-hate relationship. I loved to hate her, she loved to hate me, and that was the way that we loved to have it all the time. So we formed this very adversarial relationship. And since my father was a long-haul truck driver and was on the road 90% of the time, that just seemed to accentuate everything that was going on at home and exacerbate it. When I, when I found out my stepmother smoked pot, I did the only smart thing I knew what to do. I flushed her stash down the toilet. Uh, unfortunately, she did not see that as a conciliatory gesture on my part. And so that only made things once worse again. Uh, I wrote a song about her. I took a popular song at the time. Remember the song, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover? Well, I retitled it, and I re-lyricked it, and I called it 50 Ways to Beat Your Stepmother. And the lyrics were in accordance with the title. When she found the song, she was less than impressed. Hand-to-hand -hand combat was a norm in my home. We oftentimes came to blows. Uh, we practiced wall-to-wall -wall counseling. My parents' relationship was no better. They often would fling expletives at one another. And when they were done screaming and yelling at one another, then they would throw objects of high density at one another. Needless to say, I grew up in a very tumultuous home. When I was 16, I was... I remember receiving a phone call, and on the end of the phone, the, the speaker was saying, Mark, your mother is on her deathbed. She tried to commit suicide. She, she somehow got hold of some matches, and she lit her bed on fire, and she's now in the Portland, Oregon Burn Center. You need to go see her before she dies. For the first time in my 16 years of miserable existence, I was confronted face-to-face -face with the fragility of life. As I hovered over my mother's deathbed and I looked at her in a semi-comatose state, for the first time in my life, my thoughts were propelled into the eternal realm. And I began to think about things beyond this life and began to think about eternal verities. God had my attention. After my, step, after my mother died, I remember looking up into heaven and saying, God, if there is a God, would you please reveal yourself to me? Just a few weeks subsequent to my mother's death, I came home from track practice one night, only to find all of my belongings scattered from pillar to post out in the front yard. I thought, that's rather strange. 
I went to the door, inserted my key in the lock, and you guessed it. My key would not turn those tumblers in that lock. And I said, this is really strange. Things have gone from strange to bizarre. And I looked on the door, and there was a little note attached. And on that note, it said, Mark, you are no longer welcome in this home. Find someplace else to live. On that dreary Washington evening, I remember crying out to God once again, and I said, Lord, please show me the truth about Yourself. Well, when I was 18, I did the only logical thing an 18-year-old does who's sick and tired of living under somebody else's roof. You see, I'd been living with a coach, and I was tired of being told what to do and tired of doing things according to other people's schedule. So I did the only logical thing. I signed a six-year contract with Uncle Sam in the United States Air Force. And there I was introduced to a nice man called a training instructor. And he was an ape-like, belligerent-looking creature who was given to great fits of rage. In fact, he made my stepmother look like a Nobel Peace Prize winner. And for the first time in my life, I was actually homesick and thought about going home. Things didn't seem so bad. Well, in my epic search for God, I attended all the various chapel services. I went to the Protestants, the Baptists, the Catholics. I even went to the Mormons. And do you know out of all the chapel services I went to on that Air Force base, only one of them opened the Word of God, and it was the Mormons. I began to think maybe they have the truth. But God had another plan. He didn't keep me there long enough to find out. But I was tired of running into dead-end cul-de-sacs everywhere I turned. And as I boarded a plane headed for Cheyenne, Wyoming, F.E. Warren Air Force Base, I cried out once again and I said, Lord, please, this day, lead me to somebody who can show me the truth about Yourself. And little did I know that He would do that. As I was ushered into F.E. Warren Air Force Base, taken to a transient room, there was a young man there sitting on the edge of his bed. And he was reading a book. And I went up and he looked up from his book and he stuck out his hand with a warm grip. He said, welcome, Mark. And he introduced himself. And after all of the introductions, I said, Ted, what's that you're reading? He said, it's the Bible. I said, do you believe that book? He said, listen, my friend, I believe it from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation chapter 22. I said, we need to sit down and talk. And so we did. And he began to unfold the manifold truths of God's Word to me. And for the first time in my life, he confronted me with my sin. He showed me the great dimensions of my sin, the height, the breadth, the depth of it. And it seemed insurmountable to me. It seemed overwhelming to me. But he didn't stop there. He turned to passages which spoke of the grace of Jesus Christ. And finally, after hearing my story about my home life, he turned to John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, where it says, He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. But as many as received Him, to them gave He the power to become the sons of God. He said, Mark, Christ was banished from His own people. You were banished from your own family. But he said, you know what? God wants to translate you into His dear family, and He will never banish you. That's just what I wanted to hear. Broken by the weight of my sin, I embraced Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and was discipled by this young man and by a pastor who took interest in my life. And after my tour of duty with the Air Force, I was discharged. And I did the logical thing once again. I followed my spiritual father in the faith down to Spurgeon Baptist Bible College in Lakeland, Florida. Little did I know that I would interface with a young South African lass and that my destiny was about to be sealed. 
You see, she worked in the library. And so I feigned to be an astute academician, just like many of you. And since she was the only librarian on campus, I'd go to the library and check out a multitude of books. And I'd wait for the overdue notices to come. It's said of Origen the Church Father that he wrote more books in his lifetime than any man could read. Well, I checked out more books in my first ten weeks at Spurgeon Baptist Bible College than Origen could have written in a lifetime. The only difference is, I did return the books, but I never returned the librarian, and she's still overdue. I hate to get the receipt on that. After a six-month whirlwind courtship, I thought for sure this was God's will that we get married. Gentlemen, listen to me. If you're not married, listen to me. This is not the way to propose to the girl you believe God has led you to. I went to her and I said, Debbie, I believe it's God's will that we get married. He has led me to ask you to marry me. Little did I realize she was about to totally rebuff my marital overtures. And she said, Mark, the Lord has not led me to say yes. I was shattered. I was destroyed. How dare she impede and thwart the will of God? Who does she think she is? I needed some counsel, so I went back to my room and I picked up my Bible and turned to Proverbs 30, verse 2. And I read these words, Surely I am more stupid than any man. After... Uh, several more weeks, I was so shattered, I was so gun-shy, I didn't know what to do. So I waited for her to propose to me. I said yes. And then she told me, I just want, want you to be clear on one thing, Mark. When you get me, it's a two-for-one deal. I said, I love two-for-one deals. I like the one-stop shop. She said, not only do you get me, but you get South Africa as well. And I said, I believe the Lord has led me to both you and South Africa. And thus we were married. And I said, well, why the change? Why, why the 180? She said, well, I was reading Psalm 37, 37. And it says, Mark, the perfect man. And behold, the upright. For the end of that man is peace. <laughs> Let me tell you something, gentlemen. Outside of salvation, marriage is the best decision you'll ever make in your life. It's probably the last decision you'll ever make in your life. But it's the best decision. So in May of 1987, I ventured to South Africa for my first visit because she wanted to be married in her home church. And I was agreeable to this because I wanted to see the country and where, where I was going to spend the rest of my life. And while I was there, what was supposed to be a six-week tour in South Africa turned out to be a 16-month love affair with the country and her people. For it was there that I served as the associate pastor of the Newcastle Bible Baptist Church in Newcastle, South Africa. And I believe Don Williams, who works here, she's also from that church, and my wife grew up with her. And it was during that 16 months of ministry in 1987 and 1988 that God broke my heart, conquered it, and claimed it for the dear people of South Africa. It was one of the most profitable exposures in all of my life. Suffice it to say, in solidarity, both Debbie and myself share the same heartfelt feelings about South Africa. I think we can identify with what Paul said in Colossians 2.1 when he wrote the Colossians and he says, I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you. 
The word great conflict, mega agon for you Greek scholars, it means a great struggle, a great conflict. It's the deep inner agony, a, a gripping intensity for the spiritual well-being of others. That was a type of gripping intensity that God gave me for the South African people. And I'll never forget it. As I share a little bit about South Africa with you now, just bear in mind that South Africa is uniquely complex. It is uniquely intricate in both its political, economic, and social and cultural makeup. It is not as stereotypically simplistic as the media juggernaut would have you believe. It is more than just white on black and black on white. There are cultural mores that the media has never touched, which makes South Africa so complex. Ironically, those who have been so critical of South Africa know very precious little about her. Most of them, if they were pressed to point to South Africa on the map, would have a difficult time doing so. Most of South Africa's detractors are high-profile critics are senators, entertainers, on and on it goes, athletes, academicians, liberal clergy. But you know what strikes me about all of this? All of those crying about the ills of South Africa, most of them cannot even govern their own lives, their own personal relationships. So what makes them think that they can take the quantum leap and all of a sudden bring peace to a country they know absolutely nothing about? Please, don't misinterpret what I'm saying. Apartheid was wrong. It was dead wrong. It was a grievous and heinous sin that dehumanized a whole race of people. I'm not saying that apartheid was right. It was dead wrong. It was a sin. But yet, you can't properly know how to solve the ills in South Africa unless you know much about South Africa. Many in the West have decried the moral vacuum in South Africa. But just consider the following. In South Africa, abortion is illegal and remains illegal to this day. In South Africa, in the public schools, religion classes are mandatory. That is how my wife came to the saving knowledge of Christ in a public school because of a teacher who took interest in her and shared the Gospel with her whole class and led over 10 of those 30 students to Jesus Christ that year. Try to do that in America. They have Currently, they have total freedom of religion. They don't have the gay rights movement. And you could go on and on. That doesn't justify apartheid by any stretch of the imagination, but that just goes to show you that there are some there who have a bit of moral fiber. The strategic import of South Africa is invaluable. When you saw the map up on the the screen a while ago, notice it's way in the south. It's one of the richest countries in all the world, minerally speaking. And that's why so many have wanted South Africa. But not only that, I believe it's strategically important from a spiritual standpoint. Because there is a flickering flame still burning in South Africa. And if we can fan that flame, South Africa has the potential to reach what they call all of the frontline states. Angola, Namibia, Botswana, Zimbabwe, Zambia, and Mozambique to the east, Malawi to the north. They can potentially reach all of these countries for Christ. Because they have the financial resources to do so. And I believe that is why Satan wants to snuff out the flame in South Africa and he's doing his dead level best. South Africa, of course, was settled by the Dutch even though the Portuguese first founded it. And they set up a victualling station way down in Cape Town where the Cape Town is, is where the Atlantic and where the Indian Oceans merge. And they set up a victualling station for, for ships from the Dutch East India country that would travel around the Horn of Africa and around the southern tip. And they would stop and get refueled 
fueled and get sustenance for the journey ahead. South Africa is twice the size of California. And it's oftentimes been characterized as a world in one country. I think one word sums up South Africa, and it would be diversity. South Africa is a great collage and kaleidoscope of diversity. Not only about the people, but the terrain, the climate, the floral, the fauna life. Everything that makes South Africa unique is diversity. It's a first world country with third world pockets. It's here that some 35 million blacks, whites, coloreds, and Indians live in close proximity to one another. And yet they've all retained their native languages and native customs. It's possible to go for an hour drive through a city such as Durban. And during that hour drive, you can pass through the traditional Zulu crawls. And then you can see mosques, Islamic mosques, Hindu temples, Indian women wearing saris, and then pro proceed into a modern European city. All within an hour's drive. The population mosaic, there are some 25 to 27 million blacks. And these blacks are not a unified force. You have to divide them up, divvy them up into 14 major tribes. And this is where all the faction fighting comes from. If I'm from the Zulu tribe and one of you is from the Kosa tribe, we may not get along. We may not see eye to eye, politically speaking. So what do we do? We have raids on one another's villages, on one another's homes. We kill and maim one another. There's even intra-tribal fighting where you have, suppose in the Zulu tribe, you might have the family of... Uh, you might have the Zulus and have another family name over here. The Zulus and this other family name will fight because they're not from the same family. This is under the headship of the same tribe. So you can see some of the complexity of it all. There are over 13 political factions represented in the, in the, by these 14 major tribes. On an average, 11 blacks die every day in violence in South Africa. It's staggering to think about it. You see, blacks are easily intimidated because of their ancestral worship. You see, they have the Zangoma. The Zangoma is the witch doctor. And what happens is these political thugs come knocking on your door and they say, you stay away from work today or you vote this way or you vote that way because if you don't, the Zangoma will know. And the Zangoma will, will call down the ancestral spirits upon your home and you will never live in peace again. And so it is very easy to intimidate these people. That's why elections are going to be a very tenuous thing in South Africa because many of these people will be forced to vote for a political party that they don't want to vote for because of mass intimidation. Currently, the Zulus are represented by the Nkata Freedom Party and Chief Mangasutu Budulezi. The Kozas are represented by the African National Congress and Nelson Mandela. And these two groups are responsible for much of the carnage which is taking place in South Africa today. The ANC, of course, is famous for their, for their people's courts and their tire necklaces. Maybe you've heard about the tire necklace. It's where they find a black moderate and they, they charge him with being guilty of collaborating with the white racist regime. And when they take that black collaborator, they'll take him and they'll go to a liberal church They'll hold a people's court, a mock trial. They'll find them guilty of, of collaborating with the whites. Once his guilt has been pronounced, they, they take him outside. They bind his hands behind his back. They take a tire and put it around his neck. They fill the tire up with diesel fuel because it burns longer than gasoline. And with that, they light the match. Within minutes, that tire reaches 750 degrees Fahrenheit. 
giving off hydrocarbon fumes which begin to asphyxiate the individual. And it's a slow, heinous death. It takes 25 minutes to die this way with hot, molten rubber dripping down your torso. And all the while the, the individual's wreathing in pain, there will be a mob of people spitting and throwing rocks and throwing sticks and cursing at this individual. It goes a long way to intimidate the onlookers who have just seen what has happened. Add to all of this mayhem, over 500,000 blacks annually enter South Africa from Mozambique, Angola, and other black Marxist countries. So they have all of these refugees. More blacks, more tribes, more fighting. Amongst the whites, you have some six million whites. Three and a half million are from the Afrikaans descent, which is Dutch descent. Two and a half million from English descent, which my wife is from the English segment. And even amongst the whites, you would think there would be harmony. And oftentimes, there is no harmony. They fight amongst themselves about who is better. You have Indians, 1.5 million Indians of Asian descent. Outside of Bombay itself, South Africa has the largest Indian contingent in the world. And then there are 3 million Cape Coloreds. What are the Cape Coloreds? The Cape Coloreds are a mulatto, hetero-race people. What happened is as the, as the Boers or the Dutch farmers were moving to the interior in the land, they would cohabitate with their slaves. And their slaves were often either black or of Malaysian descent. And so out of this uh, arose the colored population. A, a, a people that is totally indigenous only to South Africa. And they're right in the middle. They're not fully accepted by the whites. They're not fully accepted by the blacks. They're just kind of in this vacuum in the middle. That's a little bit about people of South Africa. The languages, it's bilingual. English and Afrikaans. Afrikaans is a Dutch descent language. But there are also a multitude of tribal languages, Bantu languages. You have Zulu, you have Kosa, you have, you have Sutu, North Sutu, South Sutu. With every tribe comes a different language and different dialects within that tribe. So it's not only English and Afrikaans. I tried to learn Afrikaans while I was in South Africa. I picked up a book called Painless Afrikaans. After my, that was an oxymoron because after my first lesson, my tongue was in traction for a month. Not only could I not speak Afrikaans, I couldn't even speak English after that. But it's advantageous to be a polyglot, to know several languages when you go to South Africa. Industrially speaking, uh, economically, South Africa relies heavily on private enterprise, agriculture, fishing, mining, quarrying, manufacturing, and of course she's noted for her great mineral wealth, gold, diamonds, platinum. And this is what it made sanctions so hypocritical, so duplicious. It's a fact on the one hand we wanted to slap South Africa with sanctions, but on the other hand we would allow their minerals into our country because those minerals are vital for our manufacturing here in this country. They're vital for medical technology, vital for aerospace, vital for the auto industry. If we were to cut off the minerals from South Africa tomorrow, we'd put out of work almost 4 million people in this country. When I was in South Africa, I met with some Zulu princes. I said, what's one thing you want me to go back to the American people with? What would you have me say to the American people? They said, please, no more sanctions because they're only hurting the people that they're intended to help. You see, the blacks have been hit with 53 to 57% unemployment in the black townships. And we complain about 9%. What's of interest here is South Africa accounts for 85% of sub-Saharan Africa's gross national product. 
that encompasses over 33 nations. And they compose 85% of that. What about religion in South Africa? What about religious freedom? Currently, they do enjoy religious freedom. But Nelson Mandela has been vague and ambiguous at best about what he will do once he ascends to power, and he most likely will. What I believe may happen is they will enforce what's called the Religious Council of Churches, the Religious Bill of Rights, which will mean that ecumenism is in. Exclusivism is out. In other words, if I go and I try to proselytize somebody and tell them that Jesus Christ, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by Me, that would be a transgression of the new laws. And this apparatus is already in place. They just need to enforce it. So this is one of the scenarios that could possibly happen. The Azanian People's Liberation Army has already stated that the first thing they want to do when they come to power is kick out the white missionary because of all the connotations of, that missionaries bring. They have the Dutch Reformed Church, which is a predominant church, Roman Catholic, Catholicism, Zionism, black independent churches, Methodist, Anglican, Baptist, Pentecostal, Charismatic, Hinduism, and Islam. When you drive down into Durban from the north, and you're driving in, you'll notice on one of the first great motels that you see, there's a big sign, and it says, The Koran, the Last Testament. And this is the home of the great Islamic apologist, Ahmed Dudat. So these are some of the things a missionary will have to deal with in South Africa. Denominationalism rules supreme. They don't know, for instance, that laymen can actually get involved in ministry. That you can actually come along somebody and disciple somebody. I mean, isn't that what we pay the clergy for? See, the Dutch Reformed Church is responsible for, for perpetuating this idea. And so you've got all these extremes, the diversity again, once again. You've got the liberals on the one hand spouting liberation theology, down with the white racist regime. And on the right hand, you've got neo-Nazis running around using the Bible to purport their doctrines. And everybody says they're right. You see, the church in South Africa is amorphous. For you Greek scholars, that means formless. See, the basic problem in South Africa is the basic problem that we face right here in America. You've got too many dead preachers preaching too many dead sermons to too many dead people. You saw a little while ago it said 77% Christian in South Africa. That's a misnomer. Christian in name only. Let me share a little bit about the Dutch Reformed Church. You see, because the Dutch Reformed Church is guilty of providing the theological justification for the whole apartheid structure. And what they have done is they have come along with what we call an eisegetical hermeneutic. That means I impose my experience, my viewpoint on Scripture. And they said, we're going to seize this land and God's going to give us the victory and we're just like Israel of old. In fact, we're the new Israel. And that's what they did. Let me illustrate it. Back in 1838, they had what they called the Battle of Blood River. And prior to this battle at Blood River, there was a Vortrekker, a Dutchman, by the name of Pete Retief. Pete Retief, as he was moving to the interior of South Africa, had to deal with Din Gan of the Zulu tribe. And Din Gan was a notorious man, no, noted for, not noted for his scruples and for his great morals. And he would often kill the Vortrekkers when he could. So Retief went to Din Gan and they made a peace treaty. And when Retief went into Din Gan's camp, he took 70 of his men with him. After they signed the peace treaty, drank some beer and danced, then Gan gave the signal and his, man, his men descended upon Retief and his 70 men and slaughtered them dead. 
From there, they went out to the wagon trains and they killed the women and the children. And the other Dutch who were moving to the interior, they said, we've got to do something. Their new leader, Andre Pretorius, began to pray. And he said, Lord, if you will grant us victory over the evil Dengan, we will claim this nation for you. We will build a church in your honor. And that's what they set out to do. Every night they prayed that prayer. On December 16, 1838, Dengan and his man descended upon 470 Vortrekkers. 10,000 to 470. The men prayed as they saw the Zulus coming over the top of the hillside. And God granted them the victory. At least that's what they say. 470 men killed over 3,000 Zulus within a few hours' time, which left the other 7,000 running with their tails between their legs. Only three of the Dutchmen were even injured. Nobody was killed. And so they counted this as their great mandate from God to set up a nation for Him. And they imposed their experience on the Old Testament and said, we are the new Israel. Therefore, we need boundaries. We can't fellowship with the Jebusites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites. And so we must remain separate. And that's all apartheid means, is separate development. And that was the beginning of apartheid. Not only do you have the Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa, but you have charismatic movement. And it's exploding at a phenomenal rate, just splintering mainline churches. Then you have African churches. You've got the Zionist church, which is a synchristic mix. And the Zionists, what they do, they take a little bit of uh, Christianity, a little bit of Judaism with some of the purification rites. And they like baptism as well. And they co-mingle it all with a little bit of, of speaking in tongues and visions and dreams. And then throw in a little bit of ancestral worship just for good measure. And that's called Zionism. And many of the blacks today are Zionists. You see, they come from a monotheistic background. And the way the black views God is, they believe that they only believe in one God. They were never polytheistic. But what they saw was a God who turned their back on mankind because he got mad at man because man supposedly killed his messenger. They believe that this messenger was an antelope creature and that he was killed by a man. And therefore, God is a capricious God, a very vindictive God, a non-loving God, and a judgmental God. And so this God has come down and, and He's turned His back on His humanity. And so these people are very superstitious and they believe that when you die, your spirit just goes into the netherworld and you're free to roam. You're free to terrorize. And that's why they're so superstitious. When you go into a black township, you'll see that there are tires on their roofs. And you say, man, why do they put tires on their roofs? Tires go on the car. No, tires go on the roofs to ward off Talklash. Talklash is an evil little demon who might come in through the chimney, but the tire will prohibit that from happening. When you go into their homes, their beds are up on cans. And you say, why do they put their beds on cans? Are they tall people? No, it has nothing to do with their size. It has to do with the fact that talk wash is short. So if you put, it only stands to reason if you elevate your bed, talk wash can't get up on your bed at night and terrorize you. And this is the type of thing that these people are accustomed to. Very superstitious. One man I spoke with, he's a pastor to the Zulu people. And he said, boy, I'll tell you one thing. One day I, a man came to my office. He said, Pastor, my house is catching on fire. He said, we'll put out the fire. He said, I do, but it keeps catching fire again. He said, well, I wouldn't have believed it, but I hadn't seen it. I went to this man's house, and sure enough, his house was catching on fire. Apparently, this man was unsaved, and the Zangoma, the witch doctor, had cast a curse on him, and this house was catching on fire. He said, Unfor the missionary said, unfortunately, I was never taught in seminary how to deal with something like this. But he said, when the man got saved, 
the problem left. And he said that's how God chose to deal with it. So these are some of the real problems that people face when you go to minister to these people. You have major cults that are proliferating all over the place. Then you've got liberation theology with its incendiary rhetoric. And you've got prominent clerics running around saying, aligning themselves with the South African Communist Party and the African National Congress. And they're saying that if they have a political revolution, that they'll be able to usher in economic utopia. And many people are buying the bag. You see, liberation theology is nothing more than Marxism cloaked in religious disguise. And they portray Christ as a religious terrorist running around the Judean and Galilean countryside with his band of freedom fighters. And they see sin as structural. It's not individual. You're not a sinner. The system is sinful. And so the only way to rid yourself and purge yourself of sin is to throw off the shackles of the evil structural system. And so that's what liberation theologians do. Let me just, before I close, just read a couple of quotes by a prominent liberation theologian in South Africa. He said, when people take up arms, I will not condemn them. If you want to create panic among whites, you'd find an easy target in their children. What would happen if 30% of all black housemaids were to poison the food of their white employers? There comes a time when it is justifiable to overthrow an unjust system with violence. He goes on to say, one young man with a stone in his hands can achieve far more than I can with a dozen sermons. I've heard him preach, and unfortunately he's right. He said, every Christian must be a revolutionary. Jesus was a revolutionary. I'm a revolutionary. And he went on to say, there's something odd about his birth. It may be that Jesus was an illegitimate son. Blasphemy. That's from Archbishop Desmond Tutu, Nobel, Nobel Peace Prize winner. This is just an example of some of the stuff coming out of South Africa today. So what do you do? I mean, with all the political change, what does one do? What does a missionary do when you go into that country? I mean, are you going to grab political placards and banners? Hardly. Our theme is this, Colossians 1.28, and we proclaim Him. We don't proclaim education. We don't proclaim a welfare state. We don't proclaim democracy. We proclaim Jesus Christ and Him, and Him alone. You see, we go in with the touchstone of the Word of God and buttress them up with the Word of God because that's what they need. There are exciting things happening in South Africa today because of all the political uncertainty. People are riper than they've ever been before for the cause of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. People are now giving you a hearing whereas ten years ago they wouldn't do that. So it's exciting to see and to go over and to be able to lead people to Christ but you see, the window of opportunity may only be there for a few years. There's a Latin phrase I like. It's carpe diem. It means seize the day. And we must seize the day in South Africa Well, this short window of opportunity is afforded to us. And well, these people are receptive. And we're going over as representatives of Grace Community Church and Association of Baptists for World Evangelism, working in the Cape Town area, be involved in church planning, training of nationals, discipleship, evangelism, and all these other things that go along with it. And one of the most exciting things to me is the fact that they've never heard expository preaching. And John MacArthur happens to have the most listened to radio broadcast in all of South Africa, both secular and sacred. And so when you go over and you're from this institution, they want a piece of you. They want to know about expository preaching. It's a man, if that doesn't light your fire, your wood's wet. It's exciting to see what how they respond to expository preaching. 
So we have a distinct advantage when you're from the college or the seminary or the church. Because when, you, when they find out that you're from John MacArthur's church, they equate him synonymously with expository preaching. What can you do to facilitate our impending departure to the Cape? Right now we're involved in pre-field ministries. That means we have to schedule meetings and we go from church to church to church, make our presentation, and then we wait and we pray. And we wait until the Lord leads these churches to support us. It's entirely a faith endeavor. You can pray for us. I think of William Carey, pioneer missionary to India. He so poignantly put it this way, I'm going down into the pit. You hold the ropes. We need intrepid and steadfast souls who will hold the ropes. Hold the ropes of prayer and hold the ropes of encouragement. Pray for us as we try to schedule meetings, as we try to raise our support the most difficult part of the whole journey. And we know that the road ahead will be fraught with difficulties. There are going to be obstacles. There are going to be potholes. There are going to be hurdles. But we know that by God's grace, nothing is insurmountable to us. And this is why we so confidently echo the sentiments of that great missionary harbinger of South Africa himself, David Livingston, when he said, I will go anywhere, Lord, provided it be forward. The challenge for you this morning is, what about you? Are you willing to go forward for the Lord anywhere He wants you to? Maybe it's here. Maybe it's overseas. Maybe it's in this country. What does God want for you? How can you determine God's will? Begin like I did. Just start in... I had a curious occupation with South Africa as somebody to help push me along the way as well. But I began investigating it. And the more I investigated South Africa, the more God ripped my heartstrings. That's what you need to do. If you want to talk about how God led me into missions in South Africa, I'd be more than willing to stay after, to chat with you, take your name, your address, your phone number, get back in touch with you, meet with you on an informal level. That's what it's all about. That's what pre-field's all about. If I can encourage you in any way, shape, or form, please come see me at the end of the service, and I'll be more than happy to get in touch with you and sit down and have a meal, and we'll talk about some of these things. Maybe you ladies want to talk to my wife. You want to find out what it's going to be like or what it's like... Uh, going back to South Africa, she'd, be, she'd love to talk to you as well. But what about you? Will you go anywhere, provided it be forward, provided the Lord be in it? I trust so. I hope so. Would you please stand with me as we close in prayer? Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we truly give you thanks for all that you've given us. And Father, we are so rich in this country. We've been the benefactors of Your grace and Your material blessing as well. And Father, I just pray that we begin to contemplate, meditate, and search the inner recesses of our own hearts to determine what Your will is for our lives. And Father, I just pray for those that are here struggling with that very question. I pray that You give them the peace of God that passes all understanding. And Father, I just pray for those that are considering missions. May You help them to investigate it further. May You help them to see what a great need lies out in the world. And not only in the world, but just around us. And Father, I just pray for those who can someday support missions. I pray for them as well, because they are just as needful. And now, Father, I just pray for each one that's here. You know each heart. You know each mind. You know each thought. You know each need. And I just pray that you'd just be pleased to minister to each heart and each mind. 
And Father, we commit South Africa to you. Even though she's fraught with many troubles and travails today, I pray that you would just raise up your people who are called by your name, that they'd humble themselves and seek your face, and that you would use them as vessels of righteousness to advance the cause of your dear kingdom in that needy, needy land. And Father, we'll just give you thanks for what you have done, are doing, and will do as we rely upon you. For it's in your Son's precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you.